Blog Talk Radio. Bed Tales, the podcast about Laura Ingalls Wilder, historic foodways, one-room schools, and other social history. This is Sarah Utah, the host and creator of Trendle Bed Tales. Find us around the web under Trendle Bed Tales and on your favorite social media platform. If you listen or just have an account on iTunes, please leave positive feedback because it helps people find the show. And on today's episode, we are doing a historic foodways one. We are going to learn all about America's favorite dessert, Jello. But before we get to that, we are going to do just a little housekeeping. And there we go. And I want everybody to remember that they can be part of the show. Call in at 714-242-5253. That's 714-242-5253. Or toll free 1-877-633-9389. That's toll free 1-877-633-9389. Uh, and as far as what is coming up in Loridum, uh, I haven't done my uh, yearly What's Ahead episode, and it turns out that was wise because we don't really know what's going ahead. Uh, and I didn't do one for uh, March and April either because we still have no idea what's going to happen. But doubt heart. Um, and we will get through all this, and I hope if you are home, you are taking it a good opportunity to reread The Little House book. Uh, As far as uh, future episodes, I'm hopeful that I can get uh, a couple more in here uh, in the next couple weeks because uh, I figure everybody's in and looking for something to listen to, and I have one scheduled, and that is uh, going to be Laura Ginarelli, uh, who is part of the National Library Service. Now, the National Library Service for Blind, Blind and Print Disabled is a part of the Library of Congress, and that provides materials for people with temporary or permanent low vision, blindness, or physical disability. And what she does is she reads books just for people involved in this program. And I found out that she did a version of the Little House books. And she also read Pioneer Girl, uh, which has not been uh, released as an audio format anywhere. So I am really looking forward to that. And it is going to be on Monday at 10 a.m. Central Time. Or you can catch it up anytime after that on the link. 
So with that, I think that's about all our housekeeping. And we are going to bring in our guest for today, who uh, has been on the show before. She did a great episode on maple syrup, and if you haven't listened to that one, uh, be sure to do that as soon as you finish this one, because it's one of my favorite episodes. So let's start out, Lynn, with you uh, introducing yourself. Well, I'm Lynn Beluccio. Um, I'm um, from Leroy, New York, and that's where I'm calling from. And um, I'm the director of the Leroy Historical Society. But what everybody remembers is the fact that I also am the curator of the Jell-O Museum, the only one that exists. And um, the story of Jell-O and Leroy is um, very interesting, over 100 years old. So we'll kind of go down... Uh, go down that memory lane today, talking a little bit about why it's in Leroy and lots of other stuff. So it'll be fun. Yes, I think so. So uh, to start out at the beginning, what is gelatin? Well, what is gelatin? And why is gelatin different than jello is really probably part of the question. Um, gelatin's been around. I mean, if you cook a ham or a, a chicken and you know there's a jelly in the bottom of the pan afterwards that's what gelatin is made from it's collagen and it comes from the connective tissues of animals uh, contrary to a lot of um, uh, I guess uh, urban legends um, yes you can get collagen if you make it from horses hooves and bones and parts like that but um, uh, and and traditionally in the old days when they couldn't make anything else out of those things, they'd kind of throw them all into a stew pot and make them. But it is the connective tissue that the collagen is derived from. And uh, and so it's been around. People have had jellies or gelatins um, for hundreds of years, as a matter of fact. There are recipes that go back into the 1500s. And, uh, you know, they started out with uh, cooking up some bones or, you know, meat or whatever, and uh, uh, taking the gelatin, uh, separating it out, um, putting it through a sieve, putting it through um, uh, one they talk about, putting it through a swan's down um, bag to make it pure and clear, and then you added, you know, flavoring to it. And the old gelatins uh, were usually savory, so they were maybe what we would call more like an aspic. But then as you could afford the sugar and all the expensive fruit ingredients, you uh, would make sweet gelatins. And uh, so they were always the centerpiece of the table. It wasn't kids' food. And we always have to tell people that, you know, when Jell-O was introduced in 1897 for $0.10 cents a box, it democratized on a very elitist food because it took so long to make these jellies, and they were the centerpiece of the table, and um, they were very special. And um, people in wealthy households, you pretty much had to have a cook dedicated. You probably, you pretty much had to have a cook dedicated to it because you had to spend a good part of your day working on it. Oh, more than one day. I mean, if you read these old recipes, it took two and three days to uh, put them together and uh, cause you'd have to cook them down once and then strain them. And, and, uh, and, 
and they we also know they had some other sources of gelatin um, besides animal parts. They um, could make it out of sturgeon bladders, the fish. Um, and I've got to think, uh, I've never had a gelatin made out of sturgeon bladders, um, but I've got to think that it was a little fishy. <laughs> and uh, uh, we, ha- in fact, in the museum, we were able to get a surgeon bladder, part of one. And this is kind of a really kind of interesting story. We got it from the art conservation lab at Buffalo State University because they, because actually gelatins, if we really want to, you know, kind of think about it, it, they're really, it's animal glue. And in the case of sturgeon bladders, it's a source of fish glue And the reason why they use sturgeon bladders is because they get it from Russia when they were making Russian icons. They would use sturgeon glue to adhere the paint to the and and work with the Russian icons. And so when they restore them, they use Russian sturgeon um, air bladders. Um, Kind of an obscure fact that probably is not on any... um, trivia question but anyway so you can use surgeon and the other source of gelatin is um seaweed it's called irish moss and um the business of um irish moss actually along the sea coast um in england and ireland and actually in the pacific they gather this type of seaweed that is gelatinous and they extract um the gelatin from that and uh, we've had people through the museum from, for example, the Philippines talk about going down to the beaches and getting this um, seaweed and using it for a jelly, which is kind of interesting. Again, a very long process. So historically, there were jellies and gelatins, but it was a very fancy dish. And, uh, and so what we know is that um, in the early 1800s, um, and there were a couple of, of people that were, there was a guy in England that was making a um, gelatin. You could get gelatin there that you could go to the store and buy sheets of gelatin. It was kind of, you didn't have to go through the long, laborious process. And um, in the United States, um, uh, we had um, Peter Cooper, who we know primarily because he was involved with the Tom Thumb locomotive, but he also owned a glue factory, and he further refined some of that animal glue into gelatin and actually took a patent out for a portable gelatin. Um, it was not like anything that we would identify as jello, and um, but Peter Cooper's gelatin was around for quite a long time. And uh, so along the way, there were some other people that, we're going to try their hand at um, – uh, actually, Knox, John Knox, um, came out with um, an unflavored gelatin. Um, it's actually older than Jell-O brand, and, um, but it was unflavored. Um, there was Bromon Gelon. There was Trifosa. And so we – you know, do you want a dish of Trifosa? Well, gee, I don't know. So really what Pearl Bixby Waite, who is the man who introduced Jell-O in Leroy, did was, and his wife is the one that supposedly came up with the name, J-E-L-L, has to have the hyphen, O, was a name. It was a trademark. It wasn't a new and, product. And both yeah. the J and the O need to be capitalized. 
because I see it well, all the time it, wrong. It's interesting because through the years, what they trademark is actually the font of J-E-L-L-O. I mean, the companies that have owned it. So when it is registered, it is registered with a font. And, uh, for example, we have a billboard on the throughway that says, you know, visit the Jell-O Museum. And we wanted to have the old font on that. So it would, you know, kind of be like a museum, you know, um, type look to it. But we could not get permission from the Jell-O company at that point. It was um, uh, Kraft Foods to use the old font. We had to use the existing font. And uh, they wouldn't give us permission to do that. So what Pearl Waite did was he came up with a name for a product that was already out there. Um, it was um, it was powdered. It had the sugar and the flavoring and uh, the coloring already mixed into it. And um, he, like I said, he trademarked the name. I mean, if you go to somebody's house now and you say, hey, we're going to have Jell-O for dessert, and they give you pudding, and you're saying, wait, wait a minute, I thought we were having Jell-O. But Jell-O makes pudding. Jell-O yeah. trademark is on other products, you know. And um, so it was advertised so well that people now, you know, eat Jell-O even if it's another brand. And, um, and and there's other examples of that. For example, Kleenex. If you didn't know what a Kleenex was, and somebody said, do you want a Kleenex? Well, gee, I don't know. What is it? Well, that was the problem they had with promoting this new product. Do you want a dish of Jell-O? Well, I don't know. What is it? So they had to spend a lot of time explaining what it was because nobody had ever heard of Jell-O before. And uh, he didn't buy a recipe from anybody else. We don't know a lot about it, even though his granddaughter is still alive. She, and, uh, but she never knew her grandfather, and um, they never really talked about because he only produced it um, for two years. And um, he was buying the sugar, the powdered gelatin, the flavoring, the coloring, and putting it in a box, and it was named Jell-O. And um, we're not even too sure what that first box looked like. Um, but um, he wasn't very good at advertising and promoting stuff. He was a carpenter. He was building houses. He had a patent medicine line. He was making cough syrups and laxative teas and things like that. Any little things he could do um, in the 1890s to pick up a little extra money. And uh, so after two years with not having much success, he uh, he was offered $450 by a fairly prominent businessman in Leroy who owned the Genesee Pure Food Company. And people said, only 450 I said, well, you know, that's several thousand dollars in today's money. And uh, so he said, yeah, you can have it. And so Orger Woodward is the name of the guy who, you know, that owned the Genesee Pure Food Company. And um, he, uh, he offered him $450, and Pearl White was very happy with that amount of money. Um, Pearl went on to... Um, get involved with some other products. Um, he agreed never to have anything like Jell-O again on the market. Um, he sold all of the stuff that he had in boxes, gave it to Order Woodward. Um, and it's kind of a shame. He went bankrupt later, and he died of a burst appendix. Um, uh, but he lived long enough to see that the Woodward family made uh, millions on, uh, on this $450 investment. And uh, so it it is kind of an interesting story because um, through the success of advertising, Jell-O became a household name. And 
And the the advertising genius really, truly was Order Woodward. At least he started his family out in that way. He uh, he, had, he was an interesting man. He never graduated from high school, um, had uh, worked for a lawyer in Leroy, went out to Chicago. I think probably when he was still a young man, um, uh, a teenager, came back and vowed he'd never lick the boots of anybody ever again, and he never did. Um and um, he started off by had some really interesting products. He started out uh, even I, before he was twenty, um, making and uh, this is obscure stuff: plaster of Paris target balls. Sure. <laughs> now, uh, you have no little bit about the history of those, but at that time when you wanted to go target shooting, what you shot at were glass balls, like Christmas balls, except a little bit heavier, and they were filled with feathers. So you would shoot at these things, and the glass would go flying all over, and the feathers would go, and, you know, you'd, you'd shoot at another one. And when you go to target ranges, here was all these glass shards all over. Well, he came up with the idea that, hey, if I make them out of plaster of Paris, guess what? They're going to be better. So he did pretty well with those. And then he came up with another interesting product. It was medicated nest eggs. And you were mentioning that your mom wants to know how to – use those egg molds well he made molds that were in the shape of hen's eggs filled them with plaster of paris but added lice powder to them so that when they would go under a setting hen it would kill the lice on those chickens and he made what i like to say is a pretty good nest egg of money yeah. off of those nest eggs yeah yeah and um and he was still really a young man yeah, that is yeah. really clever. And for people who do not have chickens, um, when you're having laying hens, it involves a lot of putting fake eggs under hens and taking real <laughs> eggs out and moving right. them around and all sorts right. of things. Right, encouraging them to lay more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so he had these he had up up these patented uh, nest eggs. So and then he bought some a line of patent medicines and he was doing that. He had a coffee substitute called Grain O, G R A I N hyphen O. Um, and there was another company called, and this part of the story will come up a little bit later, a company named Postum that was owned by Love the Post Postum. family. Yeah. And they, um, uh, they sued him because they had a coffee substitute called Grain O without the hyphen. And he lost in court, but he he said he really appreciated all the publicity. So <laughs> you kind of get an idea of what kind of a shrewd man he was. So he he buys Jello. Um, nobody's interested in it. The story is that one of his plant managers are walking through his little factory, and and uh, there's boxes of Jello in the corner that they can't sell. And he says to Sam Nico, "Hey, you can have the whole thing for thirty five bucks." And Sam Nico says, "No, thanks." Yeah, I'm not going to be able to sell it. And uh, so I think it, there was a turning point when he realized he was going to have to invest in advertising. And so he started advertising as early as 1902 in um, Ladies Home Journal and um, National Magazines. And um, and this, there's more to that story also because those first little advertisements were in black and white. But when you think of Jell-O, you think of color. You think of bright colors. And so at the same time, the, what is developed is the ability to print in color. And so when you would walk into the store, there'd be posters for various kinds of things. 
And, but he made sure that his posters were in color. He made sure that his early recipe books were in color and his early ads were in color and they jumped off the page. I want I want to stop you there for a second, just because um, one of my favorite things about Jell-O is uh, my great-grandfather was born in 1890, and we have one of his school books, and it oh, yeah. has a section of ads on the back, and one of them's got this really cute cartoon, and it says, you always get your just desserts, and you insist on Jell-O. That's right. Because the other thing that happens at the same time in the late 1800s is the introduction of trademarks. And so just like Jell-O brand gelatin, you would go to the country store and there'd be two counters, one on either side of the store, and you would have to ask the the storekeeper, I'd like five pounds of coffee, um, 10 pounds of flour, um, a bag of crackers, and he would measure it out for you. You didn't you know, go and pick a box off the shelf. And so when they come out with trademarks, they want you to, you know, buy their product by name. So you get by Maxwell House Coffee, by Gold Medal Flour, by Pillsbury Flour, by Jell-O Gelatin. And so along with this comes the idea that if you buy a good brand, you're going to get a good quality. And so this is something else they promote. One of their, the other thing is at this time, of course, you didn't have the bright photographic ability, and I've been trying to find out more about this, um, is the, um, they hired some of the best illustrators to do their advertising. And so their early advertising, as I said, was in black and white. And one of the earliest, was a woman by the name of Rose O'Neill. Do you know what she's known for? Um, let's see. Was she the Gerber baby person? No. She was the QB. No. QB doll. Was you know, doll. That was my second guess. I knew I should have gone. There you go. QB doll. And she was, an, she, again, an interesting story of her life. In fact, our exhibit this summer, kind of a profile, is of her work because she was just entered um, uh, entered into the Women's Hall of Fame in Seneca Falls this um, um, this last year, not because of her success as a graphic artist or her success because of Cupies, but because she was a staunch suffragist, and she huh. used all of her artistic capabilities to promote women's rights. And so she was entered in. In fact, I was invited by the. Uh, O'Neill family to go. It was an amazing event. And she was entered into the Women's Hall of Fame because of her suffrage. But you don't see any of that necessarily in her artwork. But she did over 100 illustrations for Jell-O. And that really kind of mm-hmm. traces American home life. Um, she, it, it was interesting. A, a woman did a, a master's thesis on um, Jell-O advertising during that period and said it demeaned women. I said it reflected what American households were all about. And uh, one of my favorite ads is she shows a group of college girls in their room and they're going to be making Jell-O. And this is in the 18-teens. She illustrated, she included the Cupies. And this is before, okay, again, to put it in a frame of reference, this is before Mickey Mouse. Cupies was before Mickey Mouse made the scene. And um, so the Cupie was really one of the earliest cartoon characters. And uh, 
one of my favorite recipe books is um, got Cupies on the cover. And inside, here are the Cupies riding egg beaters <laughs> like bicycles. <laughs> and <laughs> they're really great. And she starts, um, her ads start going in color. <laughs> and uh, it's, um, it's really great to see how those ads change. But they also hired uh, Norman Rockwell. They hired Maxfield Parrish and other really well-known illustrators of the time and uh, to do their advertising. Um, and, and others that we don't know about so much anymore, but when I talk about, in fact, we, we call it the Jell-O Gallery because we have, orig- we have, well, now we have over 20 original oil paintings that were done for the Jell-O company for their illustrations. And uh, when I talk about Jell-O art, they're beautiful dishes of Jell-O or of parties, you know, very Norman Rockwellish. There's a story there. And um, so they were using the best illustrators to promote their product. And uh, now here's another trivia question. The first four flavors, and this was introduced by Pearl Waite and then uh, continued with Order Woodward for a while. There were two red ones, strawberry and raspberry, and then lemon and orange. And um, those were the first four flavors. And, um, and through the years, there have been just many, many, many different flavors of Jell-O. And um, they added very, in fact, um, it, it's kind of intriguing to know that one of the six fruit flavors was chocolate. Not pudding. <laughs> Jell-O. Jell-O gelatin. And, um, and they had peach. They had... Um, Lime was introduced in 1930, but kind of jumping ahead of my story because I was talking about um, the Woodward family. Now, the Woodward family that owned Jell-O, pretty much all the stock was owned by the immediate family. And um, Order Woodward actually, um, uh, he died. He died young. He was 49. He died of a stroke. And uh, but the following year jello was grossing close to a million dollars a year that was in 1906 he buys it in 1899 for $450 and just a little about 10 years later he's got a million dollar product in his uh, you know and his business um and their manufacturing their main manufacturing plant was in Leroy um, soon after they opened a plant up in Canada. So we have boxes of Jell-O. I mean, it was known as America's most famous dessert. We have boxes that say Canada's most famous dessert, which is kind of neat. <laughs> and uh, uh, so uh, uh, they, uh, so his, his wife takes over the company because his kids are not old enough yet. He has a large family. And um, um, his will provides that um, his his wife has to remain the head of the company until the youngest child is 18. And she does that. And as soon as that child turns 18, she moves out of Leroy, goes to Buffalo, and then uh, ultimately ends up in California. And uh, so uh, Cora was uh, dutiful, uh, and, uh, but his, it's really the legacy of his children that uh, carried on the product and uh, the eldest son comes the head of the company and it's under earnest guidance that the company thrives um, through the 1920s and uh, uh, he's an interesting man they um, they lived in Leroy but they had 
um, some fairly nice houses other places. Um, he was, let's see, I think there were four boys and two girls. And uh, their uh, their lifestyle was um, sort of what you would see in maybe like the Great Gatsby. I mean, they were, they made thousands, millions of dollars and uh, lived through the 20s, the roaring 20s. And um, the factory stayed, like I said, in uh, Leroy, but then they opened another factory. I believe there was one on the West Coast. There was one, I think, in Ames, Iowa, but I don't know exactly when that was started. And um, and they just advertised this product. They went to uh, fairs, gave out free samples, and then, of course, they started giving out molds. And the idea of jello molds, I mean, molded food was very Victorian. And, um, in fact, even a little bit earlier than Victorian, in, in large English homes, um, the gentlemen, and, of course, I always am looking for uh, molds in all of the uh, masterpiece theater <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, shows in the kitchens, yeah, upstairs and downstairs and, and Downton Abbey, all those. Okay, I'm looking for the, the jello molds. Well, they're gelatin molds, food molds, but they're on the wall. They're copper. And the, um, uh, the, yeah, the, the opulence of, of that dinner table was often set by the food that was molded. And so a lot of those molds were extremely expensive. The early ones were made out of um, porcelain or soft paste. They were uh, china. And then, of course, they were made out of uh, copper and then tin. And um, and they became quite large. There were some that were very large. And uh, But the Victorians molded everything. They They molded potatoes. They molded, you know, fish dishes. They molded everything into these molds. I mean, in some ways, they molded people. They put everybody into corsets, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, molding things and keeping them on their plate was uh, was really kind of important. And, um, in fact, that was one of the things that came out. There's a, a book called Perfection Salad, but it's really kind of the story of how, um, I mean, they didn't like like a salad kind of hanging all over on the plate. They wanted it very neat and tidy on the plate. So a molded salad fit into their... Um, lifestyle if you will and so you see a lot of these uh, uh, molded salads um, going onto these plates and perfection salad was actually a a recipe that was submitted in a contest for Knox gelatin and I wish I could remember all the ingredients but it's um, it's a vegetable um, concoction with I think cabbage and some other things in it which is another question is it a salad or is it a dessert (laughs) what about your family was it always a dessert or did you um, have gelatin salads? Um, my mom says both. Uh, by the time I came along, it was definitely a dessert. Although we do have a couple of those copper molds hanging in the kitchen. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, once they introduced lime jello in 1930 and they came out with a recipe book just for lime jello, then it it becomes okay, the options of it turning into a salad and it's served during the salad course um, is part of the discussion, part of the food history. In fact, if you live in Utah, kind of the far end of the 
the Midwest, if if you're going to a church social and somebody is bringing a green salad, it's not lettuce. It's lime yellow. <laughs> you know? And um and then in and I always feel that if it's served with whipped cream, then it's a dessert. Um, if it's served with mayonnaise, okay, it's got to be a salad. My mother's traditional holiday recipe for Waldorf salad was lime jello with walnuts, sliced apples, and um, and celery. And she would put it into the little individual molds and unmold it onto a lettuce leaf and serve it with mayonnaise. And I never liked mayonnaise, so I asked her to leave that off. But that because it's got celery in it, then it becomes part of the salad course. Um, so that's kind of intriguing, really. And and in the late in the '60s, they had some really salad uh, flavors, such as celery seasoned tomato, um, and they were um, savory gelatins. They didn't have sugar in them. Um, one of my favorite recipes, which is people just kind of go, um, they look at you sideways, is horseradish jello. And they didn't have horseradish oh. flavor. And you can make it with any flavor you want. I usually make it with lemon. And you put in a tablespoon of vinegar to cut cut the sugar. And then you, when you mix it up, um, you mix in horseradish and maybe a little bit of, oh, some kind of piccalilli or something that'll give it a little bit of body to it. And then you mold it in a hollowed out green pepper, let it, mm. you know, set up. And then you slice it into um, um, quarters or whatever and serve it with um, on roast beef. And it's really good. <laughs> it's a 1920s recipe right out of one of the recipe books. So, and, and, and we we have a great time because we ask people, well, do you have a family recipe that, you know, somebody always brings? And, you know, some of them are pretty gross. You know, aunt so-and-so always brought this or grandma always brought that jello, but um But frequently it's fondly. And, and here in Leroy this last uh, holiday during Christmas, I put out a little note in uh, on a Facebook page saying, hey, share your family recipes for Jell-O because we want to put them together in a little booklet. And uh, the, But we want them from the Leroy families. And, um, so people started sharing their stories. And not only was there a recipe, but they would bring out, you know, their great-grandmother's, you know, cut glass bowl or a special bowl or a special dish or a special mold that was always brought out at the holiday time for that special, which was kind of fascinating. And people started, you know, one one gal talked about how she was given this special bowl for a wedding, for her wedding. It was a wedding present. And she always uses it for Jello at Christmas time. So, you know, there's there's great family stories with Jello, And I don't know if I don't know of another product that is quite like that, um, you know, that's been around that long. And um, so, th- like I said, there's just some great stories. We asked people to share. A, a, a funny story was um, a woman that shared with me. She was on the way to the church social, and she had her jello on the uh, on the uh, seat next to her in the car, and she stopped in a hurry, and it fell off onto the rubber floor mat. 
And when she got to, and, and the heat was on, and so she got to church, kind of just scooped it up, put it back in the mold, and served it. And I'm going, oh my God, I can't believe anybody <laughs> would share that story when she did. And, uh, you know, there's, it, it, it's really kind of interesting because it conjures up um, uh, a lot of stories. And we have also people that all they can associate with it is that was what they were served when they were sick or when they were in the hospital. And so it's not always, you know, it, it might not be. Um, the kind of f- food memory that we like to think of with a product like that, but uh, uh, it's it's it, it's an interesting product. We we really enjoy talking to people about it and uh, having them share their stories. And uh, uh, and we have obscure stuff at the uh, museum. For example, we have the brainwave test. Um, Jello does have brainwaves. Um, Dr. Adrian Upton, um, who um, taught at McMaster University in in Canada, was lecturing to his, I think it was a pre-med class, explaining to them why an EEG machine that tests brain waves is not used to determine whether somebody is dead or not. Because as he said, even a bowl of jello will give you you the frequency of brain waves as the human brain. And he proceeded to hook up a bowl of Jello. I guess it was lime Jello. I'm not too sure why. Uh, to an EEG mm-hmm. machine, and sure enough, the brain waves are the same frequency as the human brain. Well, we were kind of dubious about that, and uh, we got um, quite a while ago. We got one of the local hospitals who agreed to do that. They said, "Yeah, we'll do it." And it was kind of a publicity stunt. And um, so the day before this was all to happen, when before the reporters were supposed to be there, I get this phone call, and this woman is shouting at me on the phone. She's like, you're not going to believe it. I said, oh, excuse me, who is it? She said, what? She said, it's, 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 the, the brain waves, they're, they're just like the human brain. And I, I had to slow her down. And she was one of the technicians in the hospital, and she was totally amazed because they were kind of doubtful, and they wanted to try it ahead of time. And <laughs> um, so, indeed, it does. And, and what it is is just like the human brain. Um, it's the same kind of um, consistency or, or texture of, of a human brain, and, and it will absorb the frequencies of lights or machinery or just humming uh, in a room, and um, it, it does its same, you know, condition as the human brain. So, yes, indeed, it has brain waves. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so do we want to tell your mother how to get the um, jello out of the egg mold? Yes, she very much wants to know. And uh, Lynn, Lynn comes to some of our living history conferences, and she always brings Jello eggs for the auction. So, yeah, how do you do. get them out whole? Because my mom almost always just has a bunch of half eggs. Yeah, almost. Well, all. there's a yeah, there's a couple of things. Uh, if you're going to, and of course, people don't mold Jello too much anymore because. They, you know, but um, it is kind of fun. There's a certain challenge to it. Um, olds are actually pretty easy. Um, and there's a couple of things you want to remember. Number one, you want to make sure that the inside of the mold has been um, coated with some kind of, um, you know, salad oil or, or Pam or whatever commercial product you want to spray in there. So make sure that it's, you know, well greased, lubricated there. The other thing is to make sure that your Jello doesn't have a lot of water mixed in with it. And um, so, if you you know if you're making Jello jigglers, which we'll talk about in a minute, you want to make sure you follow that recipe, so that um, the gelatin itself, the Jello itself, is finger food. 
rather than just you know and that's that's true if you're going to make it in a um, a mold a large mold because if you make jello just following the regular recipe of two cups of water with a package the three ounce package um then when you unmold it it's going to kind of slump and um so you want to you know not make it with the full amount of water and um when, in fact, um, when we we had a, a during, I guess it was back when we opened the museum in 1997 during the 100th anniversary, we made uh, we had a big dinner fundraiser, and um, the centerpieces of the table were molded gelatins, and I got some of these big gelatin molds. Well, I only put as much gelatin into the hot water. As I mean, I I just kept adding gelatin and gelatin and gelatin until it wouldn't, you know, it took everything to dissolve it, and um, so that it was almost a slushy and it wasn't even cold yet. And so you could pick them up and move them around with your hands. And these were big ones, and um, they they were like that for hmm, how long did we keep? We kept them for a couple months. They were kind of intriguing. Anyway, um, so, yeah, you just don't want to use as much water. And then when it comes to uh, to releasing them, in the case of the, the egg mold, actually, once they have set up and you want to make sure they're good and hard, you don't need to put them in hot water at all, um, although it does help just to kind of put them in hot water. But those egg mold things are kind of hard to do that. And all I do is I very carefully open the top of the mold so that it, the little eggs, but you got to like pop the seal on them. You don't want to, otherwise they'll break in half. And, um, and then I just stick my finger up inside and plop the egg out. But um, yeah, she just needs not to use as much water and uh, make sure that the inside is, you know, sprayed well. And the two kinds of egg molds that Jello came out with, one is smooth on the inside. One's got little ridges and the little ridges are a pain in the neck. They, they catch the Jello. So make sure you've got the smooth, sided ones they aren't manufacturing those anymore and i know it's they're kind of expensive to find but they they are and i like them for doing the the jello eggs uh at the museum because um they have their own little pack carrying suitcases if you will i can the recipes i have make um you know four uh different sets of their 24 eggs and so uh um i have four little suitcases that i take them and serve them right out of there but we didn't share that they also have vodka in them, did we? No, I hadn't said that. <laughs> and, and the whole story of Jello shots is, is, you know, a whole different culture. But uh, my father had a recipe for the the Jello shot eggs, um, and he liked gin, so they were called gin Jello. And um, in um, in Rochester, New York, one of the uh, one of the uh, fellows that was uh, known to be part of the mafia. His name was Gingello, so we always kind of laughed about that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and and right now there is this whole big culture of jello shots, and we, you know, we have some of these great books that have got, but, again, protecting the trademark, they can call them gelatin shots. They can call them whatever they want to, but technically they cannot use, the book cannot use the trademark name of jello. Uh, well, yeah. you'll be happy to know that my mom makes them without <laughs> the alcohol. Yeah, right. No, no, that's but okay. That's okay. We've made them that way. Um, and, she um, often makes the, them the, different colors. 
And then she has yes. a bowl. There's all like there's gold ones yeah. and green ones and red ones. Yep. It looks very pretty. They're just half. Oh, eggs. it is. And and the other thing you can do with those is if you've got a a deviled egg dish, you know, the kind that you do deviled eggs in them, you slice the eggs long ways, and then you take and put a squirt of uh, whipped cream on the top, and serve them that way, and that's fun. Rather she than says the whole egg. Have to try that if she can get a mouthful. <laughs> Yeah. Well, when we did that with the Jello shot eggs, we then called them bedeviled eggs. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, so what haven't we covered? What else would you like to know? Uh, you wanted to talk about Jello jigglers, and when they came, I do. and I don't know if I guess it would have been probably when they came out. My grandmother had gotten a set of special cutters to make a little yes. jigglers out of. That's right. That's right. Um, Actually, um, it was the Knox company that came out with, um, they had Knox blocks first, and you would make, you know, buy your Knox gelatin and mix it with uh, some fruit juice or whatever it is, and um, and you would make Knox blocks. Well, in the competition, part of the um, the discussion that went uh, took place with General Foods, um, and this was in the late, 1980s was they wanted to make the food more kid friendly so they said we need to have finger food for kids so they you know played around with the idea and then of course they came up with you know the finger food um that was very much like knox blocks and they the biggest thing there was a fellow who was in marketing and his name i think was dana gioia and um he uh, he's credited with coming up with the name of Jigglers. And at first they said, oh, that's, you know, maybe isn't good. But they went around and asked folks and said, what do you think if we start calling these things Jello Jigglers? Everybody thought it was a great idea. And actually Jello Jigglers, Jigglers are trademarked. Um, and the first set of, um, not mold, but were the, were the uh, cookie cutters of the alphabet. And those were the first ones. Then they came out with a whole batch of other ones, and they show, you know, making the sheet um, gelatin or, you know, with with less water into a flat cookie sheet and then cutting out the the different shapes. And you could use any cookie cutter you wanted to, and you could pick it up, and it was finger food, and it became Jell-O Jigglers. And um, the sale um, of Jell-O um, at that particular I think, went up something like, 40 percent, something like that, when they introduced Jello Jigglers to the market, and uh, which was kind of uh, kind of interesting. Um, yeah, they there's other things. I mean, they introduced, and I don't remember the year. They introduced blue, um, and it's berry blue. It's not blueberry, um, and um, so now we have blue food. And, and I always say, well, now we can celebrate patriotic um, holidays with Jello because we have we can do red, white, and blue. Um, I always do had that. A, I've made a Jello cake, and you make yep. it uh, sort of like a flag, and you do blue yep. in the white. Yep. Yep. And they have a mold too that you know was in the shape of a flag. Um, <laughs> they um, and and the whole story and part of this thing, of course, like I said, the first molds that were marked Jello were the, like the little aluminum ones. And then they, then the copper ones that we all remember, you know, uh, decorating the walls in, in somebody's kitchen. But then it came the the plastic molds, and that took me down um, the path of learning about injection molding 
and when they would have been. And those those came out, and, and I'm not too sure which one are the earliest ones for collectors, but I'm pretty sure that the um, ducktail ones that were for, from Disney were very early, and they also had Barney and... Uh, 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 Oh, help me here. The the uh, television cartoon characters that were um, in the Stone Age. Anyway, they have some of those. Uh, yes, yes, yes. And uh, so, you know, they've come out with all these different molds. They have Christmas ones and they have the eggs for the Easter ones, um, animal molds. They're, you know, that's all been part of the, the promotion of the product. And... Uh, and that's kind of interesting. We have a, a dis- in fact, we have a wall in the exhibit um, of over a hundred molds, the copper and tin ones. And I got the idea from there was a, a building out on the west coast, and it may have been up in I don't know if it was Seattle. Um, and the gal that lived there, I think there was an artist, and she just started tacking uh, or nailing. Uh, jello molds to the side of her or gelatin molds to the side of her building and it was covered all over with this um and uh, and it, i don't know they the building was destined for be, for being demolished and everybody came they just didn't want to see this you know torn down but ultimately it was torn down and uh but there's some photographs of it. it was really neat so i said oh i've got this wall here we're going to put up and so part of when you come to the jello um, gallery museum we give a little scavenger hunt to the kids to go and so they have to go stare at that wall and count how many fish molds there are and how many stars there are on the statue of liberty mold and and how many rabbit molds are there and um, there's some really obscure stuff and this year for uh, uh, valentine's day um, i write a weekly article for our local newspaper and i the it was a picture of the picture that i had was i think we had 10 molds that were all in the shape of hearts um, different kinds of uh, heart shapes uh, that we put up, and uh, so that was kind of fun. So yeah, it's um, again part of our food culture that we don't always think so much about, but it's it's there, you know. And uh, so yeah, it's kind of fun. Um, and then spoons. I should probably talk something about spoons. One of the um, giveaways that they had were was a little Jello spoon, and um, and they've had couple during the years but the earliest ones had the jello girl and i'll tell you more about the jello girl but um on the uh, handle and um you could send away and get a jello spoon and um and then later on they had a different i'm going in the 50s and my one of my favorite ads shows um three guys sitting in a, a tub in the ocean and the poem because they rewrote nursery rhymes i think if all the world was jello and whipped cream filled the sea, then the only spoon from here to the moon would have to belong to me. So um, they had um, jello spoons that they made out of plastic in Canada as giveaways. And they were for the, um, they had the hockey players' pictures on them, which was kind of interesting. And uh, one of our, one of our guides in the museum always would make a joke. She said, you know, you see those spoons over there on the wall. They're uh, the hockey players from Canada. She says, you know why they have to have jello? She says, cause they don't have many teeth. And so they, <laughs> they can eat jello anyway. So, uh, uh, so they, they had spoons there. Well, when in 
1997, when Jell-O was celebrating its 100th anniversary, um, in New York City on Times Square, they had a big, huge lit billboard. And um, the billboard was covered with rows of spoons. And the spoons are about, you know, maybe they might be 20 inches. They're stainless steel. There was over 3,000 of these spoons nailed to this billboard. And then across the top was a gigantic spoon, which was 54 foot long. And uh, and then, you know, it there was jello stories and all sorts of things. And when they took the billboard down, um, somebody said, well, they ought to give you the big spoon. I said, the big spoon is larger than my building. I don't even know what I would do with it. But they did send us 100 spoons that were, you know, of the 3,000, which we have around the ceiling of the uh, – of the Jello Gallery, and um, they're up there, and people always ask about them. And but spoons are important. If you're going to eat Jello, you need a a spoon. And uh, so, uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, so we have spoons. We have molds. Um, we have the uh, uh, brain mold, um, or the the. Well, we also have. We don't have any right now. Brain molds. You could make Jello brains. Um, um, and uh, but we also uh, have the test from the EEG machine. Um, we have some of the um, people don't realize that the Jello company um, had a Jello Barbie doll for a while. It was put out by Mattel, and um, we have a couple of those little collectors. They also um, had they're called Sebastian collectibles, and they're little figurines that are kind of made out of plastic Paris, I guess. But they. Um, they had several of those. Those at one time were very, very expensive and very, very collectible. But now with the um, um, uh, eBay and people say, oh, I've got one of those. So the prices dropped drastically on those. Um, we have a full set of those that people can see. We also have the the um, Jell-O cow creamer. And this is something that I don't see around here. Oh, we always laugh because... We ask people where they're from and, um, you know, do you like Jell-O? Well, the people from the East Coast and the West Coast, oh, yes, well, we like Jell-O. We, we don't uh, eat it very often, but we do like Jell-O. They always whisper. People from the Midwest don't understand. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, we eat Jell-O all the time. And, um, but um, with the, uh, uh, like I said, and, and part of it has to do with the recipes and whether it's part of your food traditions. And uh, so we uh, we always kind of laugh about that, and um, and you know ask them to share those share those stories. And uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's kind of interesting having a Jello museum, uh, all our different things that we have to show folks that um, have through the years have uh, um, uh, promoted the product in the 1960s. Um, they had ran a whole series of ads. Um, with animals, and the animals ate Jello for different reasons. And uh, there was the zebra, whose stripes, of course, turned the Jello colors. And there was a, a bumblebee, and a, uh, I guess there was a, a wonderful lion who roared for Jello. And and uh, each month there would be a different animal in the Saturday Evening Post or or whatever. And people collected them and actually framed them and hung them on the their kids' walls. Um, they also rewrote the nursery rhymes, um, and and those are just wonderful, wonderful uh, illustrations. And th- and they were done by some fairly well known. The fellow that did Dennis the Menace did a Jello ad, and the the folks that did the Bernstein Bears did a Jello ad. Um, uh, and so well known illustrators in the field of 
cartoon illustrations were hired by Jello to do their their advertising. So it really is a a, a study of how advertising makes a product. It really is. So, yep. Fun so stuff. It really is. We're actually getting towards the close of the hour, but uh, before we do, uh, how did the Leroy Historical Society get started as the Jello Capital of the world? <laughs> well, I mean, with with Jello being you know being first produced and introduced in Leroy, the um, uh, you know that was always part of the heritage. But when um, when the Woodward family sold out. Jello to and it became General Foods. Um, they um, the factory stayed in Leroy until 1964, and then they moved all of their food production, General Foods, to Dover, Delaware. So um, the Jello factory in Leroy is basically empty now, um, big huge building, and um, it's part of our history. It's um, you know not active anymore. Um, and um, I mean, people come and they think they're going to get a factory tour. We have to explain to them that the factory closed in 1964 and then uh, when I came to the historical society in the early 1990s oh my gosh I didn't really think but I knew that 1997 was coming up 100th anniversary for Jell and I thought we ought to do something and um, so we kind of went down that you know path and talked with the Strong Museum in Rochester who did a took a lot of our objects and put them into a wonderful exhibit and then we got the exhibit back and we had to, with volunteers, redo our what we refer to as the academic building, which is where our um, Jello exhibit is. And uh, so we opened the Jello Museum in 1997. It was only open for that summer um, because we didn't have heat in the building. Uh, we finally got heat in the building and bathrooms. And so three years later, we uh, we were open to the public year round. And um, we uh, welcome people from all over. Every year we – well, this year we didn't. I think we were still missing North Dakota. But we get people from all over the United States and lots of different countries that stop by to see and learn about the history of Jell-O. And uh, we always tell them that um, when immigrants came in through the United States, came in through Ellis Island, they were given Jell-O as an American food. Uh, we don't know if the Jell-O company provided it for them, but uh, – it was American food. It might be more American than apple pie um, because um, it's not really that well known outside of, you know, you know, jelly. If you go to England, it's round trees. If you go to, and it's not made by the jelly company. And if you go to Australia, it's known as airplane jelly. We always make people from Australia sing the airplane jelly song. But, uh, yeah, sure. it's kind of fun. We enjoy <laughs> So it was fun talking to you today, Sarah. We hope okay. folks um, you know, are question. up this way. I got one more question before you finish up. So um, you're the Leroy Historical Society. So are you supported by the Jell-O Corporation at all? Um, We get advertising money from them. Um, We have ever since the very beginning so that we can keep our billboard on the thruway. And they help us very much with keeping that going. And initially on when we needed um, an entrance to this building and we needed – um, to bring in, like I said, bathrooms and the heat, they were very generous in making that possible so that we could, um, you know, uh, keep the doors open. So, uh, but we're not affiliated with them. I mean, we get calls all the time from people thinking that we speak for the company. We can't. I can't explain to people, you know, why they can't get a certain flavor in their local supermarket or, you know, whatever it is. But, uh, but they do help us with advertising, and, uh, which is really important for us. 
Yeah. So there you go. And I have Jello waiting for me today. You know, we're all kind of hunkered down. And um, today it's uh, I was able to get some cranberry Jello, and that's waiting for me oh. in the refrigerators. I <laughs> love cranberry. We've got yeah. some black cherry right now. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. So my favorite flavor well, was always wild strawberry, but they don't make it anymore. So, well, they don't make my favorite Jello pudding anymore. I loved butter pecan, and I have been without it for <gasps> many a long year now. Oh yeah, <laughs> no, it's been a long time since they made that. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, it's it's um, like I said at one time they had over twenty different flavors of Jello gelatin. I don't know how many they have now, and it depends on where you are. And we are able to get mango here, which is kind of unusual. Um, I like the island pineapple, um, and um, the only way I really eat oranges with mandarin oranges in it. Although I like carrots, I like shredded carrots in my orange Jello. What about you? Do you put stuff in it? Um, we like to do it when you put the fruit cocktail in. So okay. it makes a, a kind of fruit salad. Um, yeah. My yeah. mom does a lot with the, is it whipped cream you put in it? Cool Whip. So you get the, the white thing. She's got a thing where she makes, she's got these fancy glasses and she does the layers in it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, how many layers up has she done? I I did um I did eighteen layers one time. <laughs> she said no, but uh, I always like it when she does that. But the, she does do them tipped in mango, so it looks really fancy. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yep. Um, tip them in the refrigerator so you got that slant on them. The other thing, of course, which is really popular that uh, people is the poke cake where you make the cake, you know, vanilla cake, and then you poke the holes with a wooden spoon handle, and then you pour mm-hmm. the jello into those holes, either pudding or jello gelatin. And that's a popular. And then, of course, you put, um, you know, Cool Whip or whipped cream on the top. Gee, I had to do well, that, too. <laughs> well, the, the best thing about, or the best way to do that is you want um, a lemon cake and then lemon jello. And then you got okay, the whipped cream up, and it is delicious. Uh, there you go. We, yeah, we were doing on cake mixes, so we had to do a lemon cake with that. No, it's it's it, that's the one. And that's the one great thing about Jello is you get a box of Jello and it's like, oh, let's create something. You know, it it brings yeah. out the creativeness and um, you know, and, and and it's sort of fun. I mean, I like plain Jello. I I have to say, and what I do is. I'll make it because I, I live alone now and, and uh, I will make the hot jello and then I will sip on that. Like I like a cup of tea a little bit, you know, yeah. and then I put the re- rest of it in the refrigerator and I'll have it later for um, uh, dessert, you know, or a snack. <clears throat> so, yeah, but hot jello yeah. is really good, especially if you got a cold. Yeah. Well, we used to have it a lot. In fact, my brother won't eat it anymore because we had it pretty much every day oh. when we were growing up and he says he yeah. ain't enough jello. Yeah, I can understand that, but um, yeah, it's um, it, like I said, it's it's kind of interesting, and and uh, you, we look at these old recipe books and look at some of these recipes. And I'm going, oh my gosh! And there's one that's called Roman sponge, and it sounds like it. You know, why would you call something Roman sponge? But that was the Victorian name for it, and it, it's whipped with whipped cream and maraschino cherries and nuts, and I don't think that one's got the coconut in it. Oh, macaroons, macaroons, and that is so good. That sounds good. 
I know it, but it's like it's called Roman sponge. I got to come up with another name, you know. So um, and uh, <laughs> so yeah, I, yeah. I, like I said, we're the museum is just so people know because New York is is funny. We're about an hour east of Niagara Falls and about a half an hour south of Rochester. Uh, we're uh, exit forty seven of the New York State Thruway, and um, so we're you know in western New York and not downstate and. Uh, uh, we love to have people, you know, stop by and say hi and share their Jell-O stories. And uh, our website right now is under under construction. We're updating it, but we will uh, we do have a website that you can go up and take a look at. You can just Google in, uh, you know, Jell-O Museum and we'll come up. And uh, but the other things, of course, is that we um, uh, we have a historic house, just like you know, a small historical society, um, and we have a really neat transportation exhibit and. Uh, Along with Jello, so there's more to if you come to Leroy, then we're more than Jello, I guess is what we're saying. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I hope I get there to see it sometime. It's been on my list pretty much since I met you and found out it was there. One of these years. Yes, yes, yes. So, um, well, I don't know if we'll, we'll be doing it. Yeah. You can go on if you had something else. Oh, to say. I was gonna, I was gonna say, you know, everybody's posting virtual tours, and I. I guess if I had the technology, I'd figure out how to do that. But uh, uh, the, uh, I, like I said, you just have to kind of come for yourself, I guess. And there is a right now, somebody posted a, a neat history, but it, they didn't use any of the photographs of the Jello Museum. So uh, uh, there's some up there, and uh, we'll hope folks stop by and yeah. say hi. So Yeah, yep. there's a couple of tours of the museum by people that are on YouTube. So yep. You, yep. you can put yep. those links out if you wanted to. Sure, I need to do that. Yep. And uh, so, well, it's really great talking to you, Sarah. It's been well, kind of fun. You. And yeah. thank you so and, much uh, for coming on the show. I really loved your maple syrup episode, and I think this one was, <laughs> was just as good. Um, we didn't get really into the Jello girl or Jack Benny saying Jello. Well, but uh, the, I think we covered a lot on Jello, and I really do I think appreciate we did. It. Okay, well, if if anybody's got any questions, they can, uh, you know, I'm I'm sure that you can uh, swing them our way, and we can answer those questions for them. There is a neat book, but it's out of print by uh, uh, called Jello: A Biography, and has more things in it than you need to know. And like I said, there's a lot of history about the Jello Girl and Jack Benny and stuff like that. That's uh, on our website, um, even though, like I said, uh, the part that needs to be updated really is our gift shop because we have a full line of uh, Jello memorabilia, and uh, including Jello um, boxer shorts that say "Watch it wiggle, see it jiggle," um, and um, <laughs> I don't know. I you know you can't just and we have Hello mats. They don't say Jello; they say Hello, but that looks like Jello. We have those and lots of T-shirts. We just came in with a new T-shirt. Uh, we have um, some modern recipe books. We have lots of molds. I buy buy the old molds on eBay and we resell those. And folks seem to like to take those home. And and uh, um, so a little bit of this. We also have uh, within the last two years we started selling boxes of Jello. We thought, oh gee, well they can just go to the store and buy it. But found out that. Uh, People, you know, as part of a souvenir from, you know, so we, we do sell boxes of Jello and and it's a kind of a display and part of the exhibit because 
um, each flavor, we can tell you when it was introduced and, you know, uh, you know, we have the first four flavors, and then we've got lime, 1930, and, um, you know, when all the different flavors, and then some of the newest uh, products that they they have introduced um, that you can buy the Jello kits that do all sorts of crazy things when I can get them, and uh, folks enjoy doing that. Um, I don't have any of the Jello slime um, right now. I don't know how well that's going, <laughs> but uh, we never really know what they're coming out with next, but... Uh, uh, we try to have some of it on the shelves anyway. So, yeah. Well, getting mango jello is a great thing because I just love mango jello and you can't get it around here. Oh, hey, I'll, I'll send you some. I, I can only get it in one store here, but I'll send you some. Okay, Sarah? <laughs> well, I love that. Oh, I can do that. Not a problem. Well, and the so, other so, thing uh, I like that was jello, they don't make it anymore, but. It was there was Jello and you made it and it self separated into three levels. Oh, oh, we have the, we have awesome. a we have a recipe. It's called Jello One Two Three. They they had it out on the market two or three times and then you know it was only out there for a couple months and then they withdrew it. We give away free to folks if they want it, um, and I ought to post it on the website because everybody's always asking for it. And it tells you how to make Jello One Two Three. Um, as we say, you don't want to mix it up too much otherwise you'll only have jello one two but it will self-layer so i'll make sure you get a copy of that too sarah okay well, be awesome because i really have this i thought that was such fun i mean because like i said because my mom does make a lot of layered jello layered desserts and to have yeah. it just poof as opposed yeah. to having to do all this work to get it it was just poof well i loved it you know with a big emphasis on, on STEM for school kids, you know, with science and uh, um, uh, technology, there's a ton of neat jello science um, experiments you can do. And of course, the great thing about it is you can eat it afterwards. For example, if you make jello with um, uh, uh, quinine water, you know, uh, tonic water, it will glow under a black light. That's really? kind of cool. Yeah, and then then with the kids you do a you teach them how to do a uh, hypothesis. You say, okay, here's all the stuff. Which stuff is going to sink? Which stuff is going to float? And we'll put you know put those into the dish, and then you can you know figure out which ones, and then we'll see which ones really do sink or which ones float. And that's kind of fun. Kids like that one. That's a neat one. Um, we also do the Jello one two three. You know, we do that. Um, and uh, so there's several science experiments that you can do with Jello, and then, like I said, you get to eat it afterwards. Well, so. that sounds like the best <laughs> argument for doing it. Well, there you go. Since, since we talked this long, I will say one other Jello story I've got is when I was a little kid, we'd go to a country kitchen restaurant, and they would have yeah. Jello, and it was cut into little cubes, and then it had yes. whipped cream and it came in this little crystal dish and I thought that yep. was the coolest thing and I always wanted some and we went to Country Kitchen and my grandmother was always telling me it's just jello we have jello all the time <laughs> but it was it was so special because it was jello and it had it just was it was so pretty so that was me well at election jello. election time we you get to vote for your fa- well we, you get to vote for your favorite flavor no matter when you're here because that's how we figure out where people because we ask them for their zip codes and uh, so we we always share with everybody you know what the 
you know, what the leading flavor is, the people coming in the door. And um, usually it's one of the red ones. Every so often, um, um, you know, some other flavor will come to the front. But uh, it's usually raspberry or cherry or strawberry. But, uh, yeah, no, there's <laughs> there's uh, the neat niece, things. And it's, the niece and nephew and that, only eat the strawberry. And I mean that quite literally. One time uh, somebody else coming to the, the a family meal brought strawberry banana and they were not amused. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> um, the, the other thing you can do that is really perplexing is if you blindfold people, flavor it is. Well, that sounds fun. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Jello used to have a magical Jello that would be one color but another flavor they don't make that anymore but you can you know like i said as long as people are blindfolded and you you pass out you know or you just take all the red ones and they have to figure out which one is which that's really tough well but it's a fun know, thing to do I, I bet i could do it because you know they would do those tests in high school and college where it was like give you the dark colored pops and you had to figure out which one it was. And I'd always blow their curve because I can tell you which one's Coke and which one's Pepsi and which one's root beer and which one's Dr. Pepsi. There you go. I think yeah. Too. Yeah. I bet you, you could. Yeah. I mean, some of the ones are pretty obvious. Usually, um, you know, they can get orange, uh, lemon, um, the other thing that we found out, though, is that kids' sense of smell is not as well developed as, um, you know, because they, they might say, oh, uh, yeah, I know it, and they weren't too sure what it was. And uh, like I said, it was um, that was the case in lemon. Um, they weren't too sure what that smell was. So um, that's that's kind of intriguing also. Yeah, but uh, um, you can also you can do another experiment where if you add kiwi or fresh pineapple, not canned pineapple, they prevent the, um, the prevent it from gelling because the enzymes yeah. in, in kiwi and pineapple prevent the, the helix of the, the gelatin molecules from uh, um, uh, surrounding the water molecules. So that's kind yeah. of interesting and it's kind of, when we do the fruit salad and the jello, we always have to be very careful not to include pineapple. I got yeah. lectured on that once when I was a kid. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and that's that's one of the things. The other thing you can do with kids, um, if we're looking for a project to do at home and you can still eat it, is how much water can you add to the jello before it won't gel? Hmm. Um, or, and, and the other thing is, for example, before there were refrigerators, before the electric refrigerator really was, and that's usually 1920s or 1930s, yeah. um, the, I believe that there was more gelatin in the box because it had to set, it couldn't be put in the refrigerator to set, it would be set in a cool place. We know that jello will set on your kitchen counter, uh, you know, on a regular day if you don't have much water in it. But at some point, you know, you have too much water and because it is um, dependent on um, how much gelatin and how the percentage of water and gelatin, whether or not those um, molecules of gelatin will be able to surround the uh, water. And the temperature of the water is what makes the, is part of that. And I don't know all of the science behind that, but it, there, there's some real interesting 
things that you can do to, you know, at least get you thinking about it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, and uh, so those are kind of fun. Anyway. They are. And and Kool-Aid was introduced. Um, there was actually the Jell-O company had a, a drink that was like Kool-Aid. It was it just didn't have the gelatin in it. It was sugar flavoring and coloring, and they called it Zowie. And we've never seen a box of it. I've seen a photograph of a box of it. But they had Zowie. But then ultimately the fellow that came up with the idea for Kool-Aid, which I think is the Kool-Aid Museum, I believe, is in Nebraska. Um, yes, and yeah, and um, they were also they were I, part I of the. Yeah. Also, I'm they were part of the, Yeah, they were part of the General Foods um, family, and um, they've got a small little museum too, I believe. Yes, they do. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Mhm. Mhm. So, no, the Jello stories just keep on going. <laughs> they do. All right. Well, with that, I think we better call it today. Thank you again so much, Lynn, for calling in. And I think we had a great time. And we'll come up with another topic. Okay.